Joining us for the news briefing here in the studio, Salmi Sorang. Good morning to you. Good morning, Henry. Well, uh, we are starting off with an update on COVID-19. If you look at the uh, aggregate numbers, uh, certainly the numbers are accelerating. I think the last time we talked, it was below, well below uh, 17 million. And now it does appear uh, if uh, things break a certain way, we might be hitting uh, close to 18 million by the Mm -hmm. time the uh, weekend is over. And this is really affecting a lot of different countries, but maybe even more disconcertingly so. Some of these countries who have been widely lauded for having done a pretty good job initially uh, in terms of combating the pandemic. Right. A very good defense against it, or at least at the very least uh, better than many of the European nations or the two Mm. Americas. Mm -hmm. Uh, Specifically, we're talking about Japan, Australia, Hong Kong and Vietnam. So starting with Australia, the state of Victoria confirmed a record number of new cases and deaths yesterday. 13 new deaths and 723 new cases. This is a 36% jump from the state's previous record set on Monday, and it reflects the virus's hold on the city's nursing homes because one in six cases there are linked to residents and staff. Now, closer to home, Japan has also logged its highest ever daily increase for the second day in a row on Wednesday, with at least 1,264 new cases. This is the first time the daily increase surpassed the 1,000 mark. So we uh, know about Japan because it has been covered widely here in Korea. They're simply not testing uh, a lot of people, and we know that uh, it comes with some risks, and perhaps uh, they've had other quarantine measures in place that have mitigated uh, a huge outbreak, but it looks like the numbers are uh, uh, certainly not trending in the right direction there. Australia, which uh, you're very familiar with, uh, we haven't talked much about Australia, but Have they kind of, because it does appear that in the international media, New Zealand has been widely kind of considered to have done perhaps a better job. But Mm -hmm. Australia also had handled the uh, virus initially in a competent way, right? In a competent way, but compared to New Zealand, a bit less so because the initial uh, quarantine measures and the lockdowns were much less strict Mm. compared to New Zealand. And perhaps that is one of the reasons why we are seeing this uh, resurgence in the virus cases. Well, you mentioned the other countries that uh, had been considered to have uh, done a good job. Vietnam. Now, um, Vietnam had been so strict in the way they were uh, quarantined people, even to the extent that it upset a lot of Koreans, the uh, Korean travelers there who were uh, forced into these uh, very difficult circumstances. Nonetheless, the the results spoke for themselves, and they were one of the few countries that were recording zero new outbreaks Mm -hmm. for quite a while now. Uh, They had... Uh, again, um, despite some of the inconveniences uh, given to Korean travelers, been widely praised for their success in containing the outbreak. Yeah, you mentioned the zero local transmission rate. That's been continuing on for over three months now. But mm. unfortunately, that track record is now broken. A 57-year-old in t a n a n g he tested positive for the virus this past Saturday, followed by 34 local transmissions in the ensuing five days. Meanwhile, over in Hong Kong, for the ninth day in a row, the city registered 100-plus new infections. And on Wednesday, it reported 149 new cases. Now, this is particularly worrisome for the case in Hong Kong because the health authorities there, they say that the occupancy rates of negative pressure rooms and isolation beds Mm. in public hospitals, um, it's already at 80% and 78% respectively. Right. And uh, I think we'll talk about that uh, later on in this segment in terms of occupancy rates and the effect it has with perhaps some uh, flawed 
or uh, uh, perhaps uh, maybe error-prone strategies in how to combat this disease, including things mm-hmm. like herd immunity and the effects it might have on a uh, system's uh, infrastructure, including, of course, uh, their medical, medical care services. Again, uh, looking at the global numbers now, though, uh, we are at uh, 17.4%. million cases. Uh, Those numbers are accelerating. Uh, 647,000 deaths uh, globally, I believe. How is Korea doing? Korea is doing very well comparatively. And numbers especially has dipped down to a one-month low yesterday. So KCDC reported 18 new cases from Wednesday, bringing the national tally to 14,269. Of the 18 new cases, seven were local transmissions, 11 were imported cases, and there were no new deaths. Right, and before we pat ourselves on the back and talk about K-Pangyuk and how well Mm -hmm. we're doing, we we do have to look at these cautionary tales, right? Like uh, Vietnam and and places like Hong Kong, where uh, the current numbers where it stands right now does not necessarily imply that uh, things will uh, necessarily stay at that low level uh, Mm -hmm. with foreign uh, arrivals or even another local transmission that could break out. Mm Mm-hmm. Let's talk about another uh, situation that is unfolding. And this one, again, kind of leading to a wider discussion that we will have with herd immunity. But a recent study showing that more than half of the residents in India's Mumbai slums have the antibodies to the coronavirus. That's right. More than half, 57% uh, to be precise. Now, this is the closest uh, community anywhere in the world has come to achieving that herd immunity. So this study was a collaboration between Indian local authorities and medical institutions there. And it looked at three crowded slums in the Indian financial capital of Mumbai. And it compared the immunity rates within the slums to that outside. The test was conducted in the first half of July, and the sample size was over 6,900. Now, in terms of the results, 57% of the samples collected from within the slums tested positive for coronavirus antibodies. And this compares to only 16% for samples collected outside. So what's the significance of this? Well, it implies that more than half of those tested have already contracted and recovered from, or at the very least, they're in the late stages of currently battling Mm. an infection. And it also shows you how rampant transmission can get when you have people living in very close proximity to each other with no running water and people having to share public uh, toilet facilities Mm. with numerous other families. So once again, that study was conducted on three slums. In India, there are thousands more. As of Monday, Mumbai alone had 627 slums that were active containment zones. Now, India as a whole recorded more than half a million infections in the past 12 days, and the country crossed the 1.5 million coronavirus caseload mark on Wednesday. So there is then, uh, I I believe, uh, an image of India, maybe rightly or wrongly, that uh, there is a certain level of poverty there, and there are Mm -hmm. certain pockets of the population that do live in uh, these more squalid conditions. uh, And and you talk about these areas like the slums, where, uh, quite frankly, there will not be perhaps a stringent testing protocol and Mm -hmm. where things like social distancing are just not realistic to do. So Mm -hmm. for uh, many of these individuals who live there, uh, they certainly will uh, just by just nature of their lifestyle contract the uh, coronavirus Mm -hmm. uh, disease. And so then this idea that has been uh, floated around uh, the slum 
paradox. Uh, usually you think of that meaning that uh, it uh, kind of goes against conventional expectations or thinking. Uh, it might actually be, I, I guess you can use the word ironic, that uh, living in the slum areas might actually be safer for you if your one only ad- objective is to not contract coronavirus. That's right, because of that uh, 57% and whether that is enough for herd immunity. Now, just exactly how much of a population uh, needs to have immunity to a virus for the overall uh, herd to have immunity, that depends from disease to disease because each virus acts differently. Mm. For example, for the measles, uh, it's around 95%. So you need 95% of the community to have immunity for there to be herd immunity. For influenza, it's much lower. You just need around 33 to 44%. For COVID-19, it's somewhere between 50 and 80 percent. And regarding the slum paradox, Jaya Prakash Muliyil of India's National Institute of Epidemiology, he referred to the aforementioned study and said, if people living in Mumbai, if they want a safe place to avoid infection, they should probably go to the slums. Now, for reference, if we have a look at immunity rates in other areas, An April study in New York City showed that 21% of the population had antibodies to the coronavirus, while a May study in Stockholm indicated 14% had immunity. And it's interesting because I've been listening to some of those uh, podcasts that focus on uh, these uh, various scientific studies. I'm going to go on a spiel here if you want to do something else. (laughs) But with with New York, Mm -hmm. uh, there is uh, another paradox that has occurred because they were by far uh, bearing the brunt of the uh, pandemic initially in the outbreak in the United States where it was a crisis situation and there was a a point in time where they felt that hospital beds and ICUs were going to be overrun with the number of infected patients. Patients. Uh, right now, as it stands, uh, we have about 30 U.S. states that are having their infection rates rise uh, mm-hmm. and percentage of positive test results are also uh, quite high in these states. However, uh, in contrast, uh, New York has shown a very steady decline or at least a very low level of uh, new Infections, And so people have been wondering whether this was a result of herd immunity. And uh, again, with the threshold of 21%, it seems like the consensus from the uh, experts you're citing, uh, that would not be necessarily high enough Mm -hmm. to be able to have that kind of a herd immunity effect. And then the second theory was, well, they have just uh, developed a a much more aggressive treatment protocol Mm -hmm. that is allowing uh, the CFR, the case fatality rates, and and just the uh, increased testing protocols to keep things sort of uh, under. Under control there. That's contrasted to, again, you mentioned the other country, Sweden. Now, Stockholm, 14% immunity. Uh, they were uh, a country that kind of went against the herd. And I, I think it, it is uh, pretty remarkable to a lot of people here in Korea because if you live in Korea, you kind of know there is this utopian vision of Sweden <laughs> that is kind of bandied about, right? They are yeah. the perfect country with the perfect social welfare policies mm-hmm. and the perfect society with the perfect people and everything they do is just wonderful and everyone's very yeah. happy there. But uh, they did something quite um, Unexpected, I would say, in terms of the context of what the other Scandinavian countries did in dealing with this pandemic. And I know it's a small sample size of, let's say, three to four Scandinavian countries, but we're seeing that their results were far worse than their their Mm -hmm. neighbors. Yeah, that's right. So um, while the country, they never officially stated so, they were one of the few countries that flirted with the idea of herd immunity. Now, since then, there's been sporadic outbursts from medical specialists, uh, disease experts from within Sweden, slamming the government's what's essentially an open-air experiment. 
Uh, in the latest of such outbursts, 21 Swedish infectious diseases experts denounced the policy, writing that Sweden has set an example for the rest of the world on how not to deal with a deadly infectious disease because the strategy has led to grief, death and suffering and there are no indications that the Scandinavian country's economy fared better than other countries. So some numbers to back this up. Per million people, Sweden has suffered 22% more deaths than the US, 12 times more than Norway and 10 times more than Finland. And in terms of the economic effects... Various forecasts, they predict the Swedish economy will shrink by around 5% this Mm -hmm. year. So this is much lower than other European countries uh, like Italy, Spain, the UK and so on. But still very similar to neighboring Scandinavian countries. You lived in Sweden for a little while. Can you explain why they had gone this different route? To be honest, I lived in Stockholm. Um, and Interestingly enough, I studied medicine in Stockholm yeah, and right. in Karolinska Institute. It's one of the four leading medical yeah. uh, institutions in the world. And even so, I was very surprised. I didn't understand why they chose to go down that route. And it really kind of goes to show, again, um, in democracies, the democracies at least, uh, your votes really do have consequences. So whatever the polit- political leadership at that time decides yeah. is the policy going forward. And we see these very stark starkly different results mm-hmm. uh, uh, through these various countries. And the WHO now also weighing in on this uh, with various countries who have these different strategies. Uh, basically, they're saying this herd immunity strategy is inane. Inane. Uh, they've been saying this numerous times. Uh, the most recent one was during a Q&A session about COVID-19 that was held on Wednesday. During that session, Dr. Mike Ryan, executive director of the WHO's health emergencies program, He said that 60, 70 or 80 percent, whatever the herd immunity level for COVID-19 is, we are nowhere near that as a global community. And setting herd immunity as an objective, for one, goes against controlling the disease and is, two, akin to saying, let's just let the virus spread until we get to 70 percent, which means that in the process, hospitals get overwhelmed and a lot of people die. Yeah, I mean, there's surely perhaps some uh, reasoned individuals who feel herd immunity is uh, the correct strategy to go. But uh, often there, it is associated with a bit of a cynicism and, and almost a, a lack of uh, moral uh, kind of uh, compassion mm-hmm. for your fellow man. Because uh, yeah. we have political officials in the U.S. who have been saying, you know what, older people have to sacrifice for this disease because it is for the greater good of the economy. But as you say, empirically speaking, in the case of Sweden, that has also been proven to be false, that uh, yeah. these economies do not necessarily improve because you open up because human beings are human beings. And if they think they're going to die from a disease, they're not going to be uh, active in that uh, economy. Mm-hmm. If that wasn't enough, um, Mother Nature has also decided to kind of compound things in addition to the pandemic here, m i s o r a n g In Korea, heavy rain. This is the sort of monsoon or rainy season mm-hmm. in Korea, uh, flooding more than 100 homes, killing at least one person in the central region of Korea. That's right. Intense overnight downpour wreaked havoc in much of central and southern regions. According to the Korean Meteorological Administration, Daejeon saw 197 millimeters of rainfall between Wednesday evening and yesterday, with its neighboring province of North Chungcheong being hit with 221 millimeters in its p o n County. Now, in terms of damage and the scale of the damage, Daejeon was affected the most. So far, there have been more than 218 cases of damage to public facilities such as roads, rivers and streams, and 244 cases of damage to private homes, buildings and factories.
In particular, in Seogu's In Seogu, Jeongnimdong, the monsoon flooded 28 apartment units on ground level and 50 vehicles became submerged. In the same district, one person was electrocuted while trying to drain rainwater at an indoor golf practice range. Yeah, and uh, heavy rains are forecasted uh, throughout this weekend as well. So we do hope everyone uh, stays safe, especially if you're traveling yeah. out right now. As I mentioned in the opening, uh, there is a big push to, uh, to get everyone to spend in the local economy. But uh, you want to do so uh, in a safe Manner, but uh, we are expending, uh, expecting that heat wave to also come upon us typically once uh, this uh, rainy season passes. Okay, let's talk about uh, some matters of national politics. Uh, the uh, spy agency here in Korea. Misorang will be getting a new name, the ruling mm-hmm. Democratic Party, uh, the Blue House, and the government. Uh, the, they decided to get together and rename the NIS, the National Intelligence Service, uh, to uh, what I, I guess until we get the official uh, website and the official mm-hmm. English name, we can call it the External Security and Intelligence Service. That's right. And this moniker change, it's part of President Moon Jae-in's wider plan to reform South Korea's institutions of power especially those of investigative power. Now, the name change, external security and intelligence service, the key word there is external, as suggested by the word external. The revamped agency will narrow its scope and focus on gathering intelligence on North Korea and other state players as opposed to looking at domestic matters. And in order to limit the employee's ability to meddle in domestic politics, the agency will be stripped of its power to investigate suspected communist sympathizers and also will be placed under heightened security by the National Assembly. Uh, before we proceed further, here's what NIS Chief Park Ji-won had to say. If you've been following the news, you know he is the brand new uh, mm-hmm. national intelligence chief. Some contentions during his confirmation hearings, but uh, uh, he was voted in because of the overwhelming uh, majority of the uh, ruling party. He's basically saying that uh, the uh, transfer of the authority for the anti-communist uh, investigation of uh, the typically in the portfolio of the NIS to the police now uh, strengthening internal and external uh, control. And uh, ironically, because he is ahead of the um, agency, he actually wants to limit the power of the agency he is in charge of Mm -hmm. in a democratic manner. But the only way to have done that right now is through uh, legislative reforms. Yeah, that's right. Um, Aside from the spy agency, the reform package, it also affects prosecutors and the police. The plan limits the primary, uh, the prosecution's rights to open up its own primary probes and will be restricted to six major fields. Crimes on corruption, economy, public servants, elections, defense projects and disasters. For the police, the package proposes adopting an autonomous regional police system, one that is independent of the national police. Yeah, it makes sense. The U.S. has a CIA and the FBI. CIA only Mm -hmm. really uh, goes against foreign uh, Mm -hmm. spies uh, here in Korea. They're trying to uh, look at a similar system. Final story here, Misorang. Uh, This is controversial and may affect uh, Korea eventually. The U.S. has decided to withdraw 12,000 troops from Germany, raising concerns here. That's right. So President Donald Trump, he told White House reporters on Wednesday that the U.S. is reducing the force in Germany because Germany is not paying their bills. So how will it be divided up? Around 6,400 troops that will be sent home, while the rest will be relocated to other NATO countries, such as Italy and Belgium. 
Now, this move will take years and cost billions of dollars to execute, and in the end, it'll reduce U.S. military presence in Germany by more than 25%. This decision it has attracted bipartisan congressional opposition in the U.S. Mm-hmm. amid concerns that it'll weaken the U.S. military position vis-à-vis Russia. So the question for us is, might we see a similar uh, move for Korea? Of course, we don't know yet. But Seoul and Washington do remain deadlocked in talks about defense cost sharing, with Trump insisting that South Korea is now rich enough to pay up more. So that threat is being tangled. Whether they're going to actually do something that dramatic uh, before the November elections uh, remains to be seen. And quite frankly, uh, whether it's even an issue that voters care enough Mm -hmm. about to actually uh, decide who to vote for. All right, uh, we will have to leave it there. And Bisorang, as always, uh, uh, always appreciate the hard work. We hope you have a good weekend, and I believe uh, we will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm. Thank you for having me. Let's get our first check of traffic and weather.